exciting to be here this morning. I have uh, good news and bad news. The bad news is uh, your regular teacher, John Cackleman, is not here this morning. The good news is your regular teacher, John Cackleman, is not here this morning. <laughs> Which means that there will be periods of silence where you can jump in and say something if you want to. Uh, which doesn't usually happen when John is up here. Uh, I hope you have been enjoying John's presentation of the miracles. Uh, I have. I've made it a point of telling him at least twice, maybe more. Uh, I have never seen the miracles presented in groups or by companion miracles the way he's been doing it, and it has been very good. Um, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot of appreciation for his grouping of those miracles, and you should let him know if you've enjoyed that as well. I'm a little uh, nervous, uh, anxious about uh, leading this class. Uh, I don't usually, um, I certainly do not seek the opportunity to lead a Bible study in the auditorium, and I'll tell you why. When I was a boy, living at home with my parents and my two younger brothers, every year around August or so, there would be class promotions. And it was an exciting time to be able to move up to the next class. I'm getting to be a bigger boy. I'm going to be uh, moving up to the big boy class. My brothers felt the same way. It had some apprehension because you'd be the youngest one, but, you know, in a couple of years you'd be. One day we were driving home from church, and my brothers and I were talking about our new class and how exciting it was. And somebody asked mom and dad, you know, do you keep moving up, getting promoted to the next class? Dad said, yes, but be careful because one day you'll be promoted to the auditorium class and that's the last class. <laughs> he said, from there you get promoted right into heaven. So when you get promoted to the auditorium class, you're in the last. So I'm a little hesitant about teaching in front of this group today. Sometimes I like to uh, go by a fast food restaurant and get a large drink. I did this morning. If you're going to sell a cup of drink this size, you should buy straws that fit it. They don't have straws to fit this cup. When I try to get all of the drink out of this cup, it makes me mad. I have to be willing to kiss the lid of this cup to get the last bit of drink out of here. And it makes me mad. This straw is adequate. It's uh, better than nothing. The only thing worse than being better than nothing is being barely better than nothing. And that straw is barely better than nothing. That much more would make all the difference in the world. How expensive can a straw be? 
especially in the volume these people are buying them in. It makes them look bad. I'm going to tell you, I got this one from Hardee's. It gives them a bad name. Don't go to Hardee's and get a large drink. They'll give you a short straw. And it occurred to me that sometimes Christians are like this. Barely good enough. Barely better than nothing. That makes people mad. It makes people who see you mad because you are not all you could be. That much more makes all the difference in the world. That much more makes everybody happier. Don't be a short straw. Don't be a short straw Christian. That was my parable for today. I kind of like that. I hope you have looked at the uh, miracles that John had prepared for us to look at this week. Uh, The first one is in John chapter 5. And I would like for you to turn there, if you would, please, and we'll read this. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in the, uh, this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. He replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. 
If you're reading from the King James Bible, you'll notice that I seem to have left out a verse. Uh, that would be verse 4. Verse 4 in the King James reads something like, um, From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. Uh, the first one into the pool after... Um, after each such disturbance, uh, would be cured of whatever disease he had. That verse uh, is not in the most reliable manuscripts, uh, and is generally to believe it is generally believed to have been a marginal note that over time somehow got into the scriptures. Most reliable. Uh, Text today or versions today do not carry that verse. So I want to touch on that. Interesting the question that Jesus asked. First of all, there seems to have been a number of people there at this uh, pool of water with all kinds of diseases. And I have wondered from time to time when reading this why Jesus chose this man. We have no idea from Scripture why he chose him. It's not revealed to us. And then you have to wonder about Jesus' question. Do you want to get well? Wouldn't that seem obvious? Wouldn't you suppose everyone there wanted to get well? This man had been afflicted for 38 years. We do not know his age, only that he had been afflicted for 38 years. For a long time, and the Bible doesn't say for the whole 38 years, but for a long time he had been at this pool hoping to get in when the waters were troubled or stirred, hoping that he would be the one who would be cured. And apparently, apparently um, the first one in was the only one who would be cured. So you can well imagine there would be a lot of people there waiting day and night, all night and all day, hoping for the opportunity to be the first one. And I also find it curious, because I don't know what the, what the pool looked like, that when he said, the water is troubled, someone walks in before me. i got to tell you, uh, I'd be prepared to dive in, jump in, roll in, fall in. I'd be wanting to get in there somehow. This walking in seems like uh, there's not a great deal of urgency about it. But I'm sure that's just me. I'm sure everyone there desperately wanted to be healed from whatever was going on. Look at what he says they are. Uh, disabled people, blind, lame, paralyzed. Do you want to get well? His answer is almost as equally troubling in some respects as Jesus question of course everybody there wants to get well Jesus says do you want to get well the man doesn't say yes he says he tells sir I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred when I'm trying to get in someone else goes down ahead of me this entire uh, miracle is filled with people asking the 
what seems to be the wrong questions and giving what seems to be the wrong answers. Jesus didn't ask a wrong question. He asked what should be an obvious question. The man gave an answer which was not directly, which was not a direct answer. You would think that he would. Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. It also seems apparent from this reading that the man did not know who Jesus was. He says, sir. Unlike so many other times where Jesus is called rabbi, teacher. Uh, any other uh, Lord, any other number of greetings or salutations are given, but this man apparently doesn't know from the beginning, and then we find out a little bit later that he doesn't know who Jesus is. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. I have to kind of imagine what must have happened next. Apparently, there's a great number of people. Apparently, a lot of things are going on. And when Jesus tells this man to pick up his, uh, to get up, pick up his mat, and go home, he does that. Things seem to happen pretty quickly here. It's the Sabbath. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, "It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat." Did they know he had been the man who had been there? Did they know he had been uh, afflicted with whatever affliction he had for 38 years? They saw him carrying a mat. A mat. It's the Sabbath the law forbids you. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Here's where these misdirections seem to be going on. They say it's wrong for you to pick up your mat. He said, the man who cured me, the man who made me well, told me to pick up my mat and walk. What should be the first question? What would be the first question that came to your mind? Who made you well? Wouldn't that be the first question? Shouldn't that be the first question? I would think so. They asked, who is this fellow who... Told you to pick up your mat. Not who is the fellow who made you whole. Not who's the fellow who made you well. The emphasis is on the wrong thing. The emphasis so many times by these people who were trying to persecute Jesus. And at this time, maybe they don't know it's Jesus, but they're, they're looking at who did, not who healed you, not how did you become Heal from your affliction, but why are you carrying your mat? Who told you to pick up your mat? The man had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. That reading seems to indicate to me that Jesus healed the man, and the man got up and walked, and Jesus slipped away. I don't know why. I could speculate. I guess you could too. We've seen from all the miracles that John's been talking about and all the miracles that have been presented, there seemed to be a specific purpose for each of the miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, 
I think there's a specific purpose here. And I think this man was the specific recipient for the specific purpose. So after he's healed, Jesus slips away. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man's been afflicted for 38 years. Apparently, his affliction caused him to be unable to walk or to move about on his own. Uh, he was not ambulatory. He was, he was left there for a long period of time. And his affliction was such so that he probably was not able to do any kind of work. He was probably a beggar. He was at the mercy of others. Any number of things, these things could be ascribed to him. And Jesus says something again that to us sounds rather astounding. Stop sinning. Was his sin an ongoing sin? Was his sin of a nature that he longed to be well so he could go back to it? Is it something he thought about? Apparently the man uh, didn't have any questions about this. He knew what Jesus was talking about. He knew what his sin was. And there is an indication in this text that the man may have been afflicted because of his sin. That his sin may have been the reason that he was afflicted. John and I had an interesting discussion when we were talking about lepers. Um, leprosy is uh, not something that can be cured, true leprosy. And in the Old Testament, uh, people of the children of God, of the Hebrews, came down with leprosy. And they were separated from the camp when they were in the wilderness. They were separated from the others and put off. And there was a, um, there were laws governing what they could do to come back and have fellowship with the camp, to come back into the camp. And to do that, they had to show themselves to the priest and show that, show that they were cured of leprosy. There's a school of thought excuse me, to which I subscribe that says some of these people sinned and God cursed them with leprosy because of their sin and they were put outside the camp. They were put outside. You might say they were withdrawn fellowship from. They were put outside and couldn't come in. They had to stay with these other folks who were sick. Apparently, if the people in this group repented, God could heal them of their leprosy and they could come show themselves to the priest, be set aside, quarantined for a period of time, be examined again. And if they were shown to be uh, without leprosy, they could rejoin their family and rejoin the camp. We know that God healed leprosy. We know that he caused people to have leprosy. 
it's amazing how many things in our natural life come upon us and we don't attribute it to anything spiritual. And because we don't attribute it to anything spiritual, when we get relief, we don't attribute that to spiritual things either. When the children of Israel were going into the land of Canaan, God told them that the land would produce for them, and it would, it, they would, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. But he said, if you disobey me, the fruit trees won't produce fruit. And if they do, they'll drop their fruit before it's ripe. The vines will dry up. Rains won't come. And if they do, it may be a flood. God wanted them to know that he was in charge of the natural world. And if they were obedient, the land would continue to flow with milk and honey. But if they were disobedient, he could change the environment. He could change things in an effort to show them that they had departed from his will, they had become somewhat sinful, and he was trying to show them, you need to change your ways so things will return to where they used to be. We we don't subscribe to that thought very much anymore. We sometimes don't think bad things happen to people because God brought it on us to give us a message or to wake us up or to cause us to pay attention or to cause us to repent or to cause us to draw near to him. And by the same token, sometimes we pray for healing and when it comes... We thank the doctors and the nurses and the caregivers and those people who uh, develop great medicines. That's how we got better. We don't often think that maybe our repentance led to God uh, healing us. Sometimes we think that maybe... uh, Praying to God is not what healed us, but it's just a good thing to do to cover our bets. Cover all bases, make sure everything, we've done everything we can. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. For the longest kind of time, I thought, if he didn't stop sinning, yeah, something worse is going to happen. He'll end up in hell forever. That's, that's certainly true, but I don't think that's what's meant here. This man was thankful to be healed of his affliction, whatever it may have been. And when Jesus told him to stop sinning or something worse could happen, is it possible that Jesus meant you could be in worse shape than you were before? You just think it was bad before. Things could get worse. I'm not sure we're always aware or mindful or paying attention or giving due consideration to things that happen in this world. That they may be from God or that God may be allowing them so that we take stock of our spiritual condition so that we take stock of whether we're walking in the way that God would have us to go. So he puts this out here, stop sinning, 
And how many times in these miracles have we seen where Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, now you're healed and go and sin no more. Is it possible that when Jesus healed these people and told them not to sin anymore, that their continued good health was dependent on their not sinning, on them not returning to sin? Is it possible that their continued good health depended on their improved relationship with God and their obedience to God? Questions, comments, discussion, anybody wants to have on any of that? This is one of those times where John would just keep going, but I'm going to give you a shot here. Um, yes, sir. I'm not trying to be accusatory. I just want us to think about some things. We think an awful lot of good is done through benevolence, and a lot of good is often done through benevolence. But if we don't follow through on the other side, Jesus always followed through on the other side. Jesus was quick to help people who were distressed physically, but he also had a spiritual message for them, and they always got both. Sometimes we're perfectly willing to give physical relief, but hesitant to know how to go about approaching the other side, the spiritual needs. And we need not think that that is some deacon's job who's in charge of benevolence. He's also got to give them a scripture to go with that bag of groceries. He's also got to give them... Uh, some scripture that they should read while he's filling up their gas tank with gas. Um, There are greater needs than the physical needs that we have. And they're the spiritual needs. Um, This is a good, good group. I can say this with confidence and most all of you will readily understand what I mean. There are worse things than dying For a Christian, dying is certainly not the worst thing in the world. Sometimes living beyond when we should could be worse. And a worse thing than dying is eternity in hell. I want to ask a question that's been on my mind as we've been going through these miracles, have you noticed how quickly people, and positively, people responded to Jesus when he talked to them about sin and doing God's will? And I don't have the sense that people today would have that kind of reaction. Uh, 
I don't have the sense that uh, lots of people give one care or thought in the world to spiritual matters. What do you think? That could very well be. But, but I go back to that misdirection. When they had asked him, who was it that uh, told you to pick up your mat and walk? He said, I, I, I don't know. Then Jesus finds him. He says, stop sinning or the worst things could happen. He finds out it's Jesus. He goes to the Jews and said, it was Jesus that made me well. He didn't go and say, it was Jesus who told me to pick up my mat and walk. There's a, there's a difference. He was glad to say, oh, it was Jesus who healed me. Uh, some, some more of that misdirection. Uh, he may have been outing Jesus. He may have been so thrilled that he's willing to tell him, Jesus healed me. Jesus is the man who healed me. Now, I... And they said, oh, he's the guy who told you to pick up his... He may be telling one thing and they may be hearing another. That seems to be what's going on there. Yes, sir. I'm reminded of the preacher story. You know what preacher stories are? They they're untrue stories that pe- preachers make up to make their point. Yes, sir. Preacher story about the man who gets caught in a flood and he gets on top of his roof and he's praying, Lord, save me, Lord, save me. The rain's coming down. It's about to wash me off of my roof. And he starts to slide and his pants catch on a nail. He says, never mind, Lord, a nail caught me. In a little while, he hears a tearing in his pants. He says, Lord, I'm about to drown. I'm going to be swept off the roof, you know, my pants ripped. And a boat comes by and says, he says, never mind, Lord, a boat came by. I'm going to be all right. He never imagines any of this came from the Lord. Uh, sometimes maybe we think things are going on. The Lord's not paying attention. Um, the other scripture we were to look at is uh, in Mark chapter 2. I'm... Uh, No, it wasn't. It wasn't Mark chapter 2. I'm going to Mark 2. Luke chapter 13. Uh, 
uh, beginning at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman uh, was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and, and lead it out and give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. This is two people who were crippled in some way. That's a uh, something that these two miracles have in common. The other thing is it was on the Sabbath day. And if we were to go back to John and continue reading through the rest of that chapter after that miracle was performed, the whole thing was about the Sabbath day. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is walking with his disciples through a grain field. It's on the Sabbath day, and they began to pick some of the grain and eat it. And the folks came out and said, they're eating grain on the Sabbath day. This is wrong. In the end, Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This being the last Sunday of this quarter and the last Sunday on miracles, I want to spend just a moment talking about the purpose of miracles. John talked about this uh, several times over the course of this quarter. Uh, the miracles that Jesus performed, first and foremost, were to draw attention to Jesus so that people would listen to what he had to say. When the Holy Spirit came on the apostles and they went out and taught, and they proceeded to perform miracles. The purpose was to draw attention to them so that people would listen to what they had to say. The miracles were also to show God's compassion, love, and mercy. To show God's authority and power over physical things, but with regard to spiritual things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, where Paul is writing to the Corinthians about uh, the miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit, he, he spends three chapters. Of course, he didn't write them as chapters, but a huge part of this letter to the church at Corinth, chapters 12, 13, and 14, on the miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, in chapter 12, beginning at verse 7, he lists some of those miraculous manifestations. And there are nine listed there specifically, but that is not all of the uh, miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But those nine were pointed out. In 
in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is writing to these people. He says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and every drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires since we live by the Spirit. Let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. There are nine virtues of the Holy Spirit. Those who live by the Spirit. There are nine miraculous manifestations listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And here there are nine non-miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which we should be exhibiting to great extent for what purpose? For the same purpose that the miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit was granted to those people in the first century who had it. To draw attention to them as being different unusual, uncharacteristic of most people, an unusual display so that people will listen to what we have to say. Our whole duty is to promote God. Our whole duty is to worship God and to demonstrate his great love, compassion, power, and authority in all things, even our lives. So that we show the glory of God. If we fail to do this, we have failed everything. If we fail to do this, we're a short straw. We're not even barely better than nothing. We're an unfaithful servant. If we think, and sometimes I wonder what we think, If we think the sum total of what Jesus came to do was so that I would be forgiven and so that I could go to heaven, I have missed one of the greatest points of all that Jesus intended for us to get. Love other people and go get them. And if I think it starts and ends with me, I am most pitiful. I am most self-centered. I am most selfish. And I have missed the point. I might as well have been a Pharisee in Jesus' day, thinking so highly of myself that I set the rules and standards and the rest of you need to try to measure up to me. Short straw thinking. This is enough. Show up on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Short straw. That's enough. It's adequate. and gets the job done.
who's the greatest Christian you know or have known. I have an idea that it was the most gentle, compassionate, kind person that you've ever seen. A person who was that way all the time to everyone. They were displaying the non-miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And you paid attention. We've just had a wonderful Thanksgiving week. I hope it was wonderful for you. It was for me. And Virginia. The grandkids have gone home and will recover. Uh, But wow, it was wonderful. I remember at holidays like we're in now, my grandmother wanted to talk to us about doing good. She would often preach to us. We cousins always, to this day, talk about granny preaching to us. Granny preached to us all the time. She was a good woman. She was a Christian woman. But she never missed the opportunity to talk to us about church, about God, about being Christians. In the holidays, it just went by. Did you have opportunities to do that with your children or your grandchildren? And if you did, did you take advantage of it? And if you didn't, I hope you feel bad about it. <laughs> I say it with all the love and kindness in my heart. And I hope you feel bad enough about it that at Christmas or the next opportunity, you'll take the, the, the opportunity. Look for it. Create it. We have to communicate to other people God's love, God's authority, God's power. If he has power over this earth and over the natural order of things, he has power over spiritual things. God can make your life so much better or so much worse. If things are really bad, maybe it's time to consider, am I living like I should? Am I doing what God, I'll tell you something. You know, your major appliances last are supposed to last maybe 15 years. And we all think that we get in dire straits and we need money and we pray to God. We think if he'll answer us, I'll get a raise at work. I'll get more money. It's funny how God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want him to. God doesn't always give us more money, but sometimes he makes the washing machine last last 20 years instead of 15. (laughs) Think he can do that? The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they wore the same clothes for 40 years. They didn't wear out. Wow. Moses was 80 when they started that journey, and at the end, his natural strength was not abated and his eyesight wasn't dimmed. Wow. If God can do those things for the faithful, then he can do them now. He can do whatever needs to be done for his will to be done. The question is, what will we do? Many scriptures in the Bible that teach this point, but I want to make it... If you'll give me just a second. Jesus' life was cut short because of God's love. 
How much more could he have done? How much more would he have done? Wouldn't it have been great if he could have just kept on? What could have happened? Instead, he laid down his life, and the plea, the command is for us to pick up where he left off, and we are multitudes. What could be done in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, if we would just do it? Thank you so much for your attention and some of you participating.